You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. This message is from our Purim celebration, presented by Julie Coleman, an author, women's speaker, and a member of New Hope Chapel's teaching team. It would be a beauty contest. The prettiest girls in the land would be brought to Susa for 12 months of beauty treatments and to live in the king's harem. One of them would be chosen by the king to be the new queen. A young Jewish girl was among the candidates. Her Jewish name was Hadassah, and her Persian name was Esther. She was an orphan and had been raised by her older cousin, Mordecai, who loved her like a daughter. Before she left for the palace, Mordecai warned Esther, don't tell anyone that you're Jewish, because they were aliens living in a foreign land, and she might be treated badly if anyone knew. Esther was beautiful both on the outside and on the inside. The man in charge of all the women was very impressed with Esther. When it was her turn to meet the king, he advised her on what to bring and what to say. Everyone loved Esther. The Bible says she found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. The king felt the same way. Out of all the beautiful women in the land, he chose Esther to be his new queen. He crowned her and gave her a great banquet to celebrate. Not long after her installation as queen, Esther's uncle Mordecai overheard two guards at the gate planning to assassinate the king. He told Esther, I'm frozen again. Oh, there it goes. He told Esther, who in turn warned the king. The plotters were hanged, and Mordecai's good deed was recorded in the book of the Chronicles. Don't worry, it's coming. One of the king's most important administrators was a man named, get ready for it, Haman! The Agagite. He was a man of great power and influence. There it goes. And the king gave him authority over all the princes in the kingdom. Everyone bowed down to him when he passed by the king's gate, except one person, Mordecai. His refusal to bow down was insulting and infuriated Haman. Some of the other men at the gate asked Mordecai why he would not bow down to Haman. He told them it was just because he was a Jew. When they reported this to Haman, his anger burned not just against Mordecai, but against all the Jewish people in the land. He started to plot and have every Jew killed. To decide when it should happen, he cast lots called Pur. Get it? Purim? (laughs) They indicated that it should happen on the 12th month, the month of Adar, nine months from then. Haman frozen again. There it goes then went to the king and filled his mind with ideas about the Jews. He labeled them as different than the rest of the empire, who obeyed different laws and who were on an actual danger to the king's reign. The Jews, said Haman, must be eliminated for the good of the kingdom. The king fell for it, not having a clue that Esther, his own queen, and Mordecai, the man to whom he owed his life, were both Jews. They agreed on a date for the slaughter, and the king issued a decree. 
He sent messengers to carry the command to every corner of the empire. And then the king and Haman sat down to have a celebratory drink. When Mordecai heard the decree, he did what all the Jews did upon hearing the news. He tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and rubbed ashes into his head. He made no secret of his grief, wailing loudly for everyone to hear. Anyone in mourning was not allowed past the king's gate, but Esther eventually heard about Mordecai's mourning through others who saw him while passing through the gate of the king. She didn't know why Mordecai was in such agony, but she sent him new clothes. He sent them back, unused. So Esther sent the man in charge of her out to meet with Mordecai. Mordecai told him about the slaughter edict and the money that had already been paid from the treasury to make that happen. He wanted Esther to approach the king, tell him she was a Jew, and plead for the mercy of her people. The eunuch went back and reported all this to Esther. Esther was terrified. Tell him, I can't approach the king without being summoned, she told the eunuch. Anyone who does that will be put to death. And unless by some miracle he extends his scepter to him, he hasn't sent for me in 30 days. There is no reason to think he would be pleased to see me now. But Mordecai was not going to accept Esther's fearful excuse. He told the eunuch to tell her, do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than the rest of the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jew from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether or not you have attained royalty for such a time as this. Esther got the point. She could be part of God's plan to deliver his people or not. But God was going to accomplish his purposes and keep his promises to his people, with or without her. It would be better to die trying than to sit back and do nothing. So Esther sent one more message to Mordecai. Go, assemble all the Jews in Susa and pray and fast for me. I will do the same with my maidens in the palace. And then I'll approach the king. And if I die, I'll die. The big, scary day quickly arrived. Esther put on her royal robes and went into the court of the king. The king looked up and saw Esther at the end of the great hall. He lit up with a smile and extended his scepter toward the uninvited guest. With great relief, she walked up to his throne and touched the top of his scepter. Oops. What troubles you, Queen Esther? the king asked. He knew something important must be happening for Esther to risk her life by approaching him without being summoned. What do you mean? Even up to half my kingdom, I will give it to you. Esther bowed low to the ground. I would like to invite the king to a special meal that I have prepared for him, if it pleases him to come. And I would like to bring his right-hand man, Haman, as well. The king loved this idea. He quickly summoned Haman. And together they went to a beautiful banquet that Esther had prepared. Everything about the meal in Esther's company pleased the king. So he told her again, what is it you need, my queen? I will do whatever you wish. Up to half my kingdom can be yours for the asking. Esther wanted additional time 
to soften the king's heart even more. She asked if he would come to a second banquet the next night, and he could, could he bring his right-hand man with him? The king agreed. Haman was... He was pretty full of himself when he left the palace that day. No one else was honored like he was, being invited to a private banquet with the king and queen. But his pleasure in his accomplishment didn't last long. As he walked through the king's gate, there was Mordecai. And that blasted man still refused to bow down to him like all the others were doing. It made him crazy with rage. When he got home, he told his wife about the banquet and how he had been invited back today, the next day for a second feast. But his pleasure in the great privilege ruined, was ruined every time he thought about that stubborn Mordecai refusing to honor him. His wife and his friends sympathized. They also reminded him of his great power by order of the king. Build a gallows, 50 cubits high, and ask the king to hang Mordecai on it, they told him. Once that's over with, you can go out and enjoy the banquet, knowing he'll never get the chance to insult you again. Haman thought that was a splendid idea, so he ordered the gallows to be gilt. Meanwhile, back at the palace, the king was having trouble sleeping. He ordered, we don't like him either, he ordered that the royal chronicles he read to him the royal chronicles be read to him to lull him to sleep. The servant read the account of Mordecai's warning of the assassination plot against the king. The assassin sat up in bed. What reward was given Mordecai, he asked. He was told nothing had been done for the Mordecai. The king shook his head. Mordecai's reward was long overdue. Who's in the court right now, he asked. Lo and behold... Haman had just entered the court having come to ask the king about hanging Mordecai on his new gallows the next day. The king had him brought to his personal quarters. What ideas do you have that would greatly honor someone who wishes, whom the king wishes to reward, he asked his right-hand man. Haman could barely keep his delight to himself. Of course, the king wanted to honor him. He tried to think of his most fondest wish. Let the king bring a royal robe which the king has worn and the horse on which the king has ridden and put a royal crown on his head and let one of the princes lead him through the streets announcing, this is the man the king wishes to honor. Then he got ready to be surprised when the king revealed the honor was for him. The king thought this was a splendid idea. Excellent. I want you to do exactly that for Mordecai the Jew. Haman's face went from a brilliant anticipatory smile to total astonishment. He was surprised all right. Honor Mordecai? This was his worst nightmare. But there was no choice. One did not disobey the king. He did just as he was commanded. He led Mordecai through the streets, robed in royal garments and crown, on the king's horse, proclaiming his honor to everyone they met. But inwardly, he seethed with rage and hatred. Soon it was evening again, and time for the second banquet. Haman 
and the king once again enjoyed Esther's special preparations. As they reclined over a glass of wine, the king asked Esther once again, what is your petition? It shall be granted you. Esther took a deep breath. The moment of truth had come. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given as my request. For my people and I have been marked for destruction. I wouldn't even bother you about this if we'd only been sold as slaves, for it wouldn't be worth your trouble. But we're talking about complete annihilation here. And I beg you to stop this terrible thing from happening. The king took one look at his beautiful queen and felt nothing but outrage. Who is planning such a thing? Who would dare to threaten my beautiful queen and her people? Esther pointed her finger at the king's right hand. A foe and enemy is this wicked Haman. Furious, the king jumped up from his place. Beside him, he stomped out without a word into the garden. Haman forced himself up on his shaky knees. He was dead meat, unless he could somehow beg and receive mercy from the queen. Falling onto her on the reclining couch, he began to plead for his life. The king walked in right at that moment. Didn't look good. <laughs> Will he even assault the queen with me just outside the door? The king gasped. Seeing the king's fierce anger, one of the eunuchs standing in attendance made a timely suggestion. There's a new gallows standing 50 cubits high <laughs> that this man built to hang Mordecai on, the one you just honored this morning, O king. The king saw the ironic justice in this right away. Hang him on it, he said. So Haman was Haman <laughs> was hanged on the gallows built for Mordecai. Mordecai was in charge over the household of Haman from that day forth. The king also set out another edict, this time to the Jews. It gave them the right to assemble and defend themselves and to destroy anyone who rose up against them. Riders went out to the farthest corners of the empire to deliver the message. The, kings re the king Jews rejoiced because now anyone who would try to kill them no longer had the support of the king. When the day originally designated for the Jewish slaughter finally arrived, most people in the kingdom actually assisted the Jews and protected them against their enemies. 75,000 enemies were killed in the fighting. All 10 of Haman's sons were hanged on the gallows. It was a great day of victory. The Jews made it an annual holiday of rejoicing and feasting from that day forward to celebrate God's protection and deliverance of his people. They called it Purim, after the lots, the poor, that were cast by Haman. And that is what we celebrate today. Give yourselves a hand. You did a great job. I'm going to ask um, everybody to pass their noisemakers to the sides, and we'll just put them down on the floor. Temptation's an awful big thing. But I do want to talk a little bit about the story, just for just a couple of minutes, to find out why does God have that story in the Bible for us today. So let's pray and, and uh, commit this time to him. God, we thank you for the story of Esther. We thank you for the things that happened um, in that story to prove that you are a sovereign God and nothing escapes your notice. And to help us, God, as we just look at your scriptures for a couple of minutes to see exactly what message you have for us today. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, like every good story, things go from bad to worse. And then there's this pivotal point, this moment where it goes and everything changes. And that's what happened uh, for these people. You know, at the beginning of the story, the Jews look a lot more like victims than they do hero and heroine, don't they? They're aliens. They're in a foreign land. People are prejudiced against them. They don't really ever fit in because they don't, they're not part of the race that's, that was there in the first place. Um, Esther may have been made queen, but this was no glamorous post. She was actually in a harem, and at the king's demand, that's where she would stay until he wanted her for her pleasure. So it was no great thing that she was having either. And Mordecai made that big save, saving the king from um, being assassinated, and yet never got a reward. So that kind of gives you an idea of, of the you know, mindset of the Persians with the Jews. Then that edict for destruction comes along. And now it looks like the Jews are going to be completely annihilated. Doesn't look good. And then the king sends to Esther, tells her she's got to go before the king, try to change his mind, and she balks. And who wouldn't? This was a powerful man. She had no power. And she was afraid. And then the pivotal moment arrives. And Mordecai tells her this. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews from another place. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. For such a time as this. What time is Mordecai talking about? Well, he's talking about the fact that all of the circumstances have come together and brought them to this point. A Persian king was in power. The Jews had been taken out, brought into Babylon, and then, then which, what became Persia, and uh, had been dispersed and were living from one end of the earth to the other. And then God takes Esther and puts her in the palace in a place that she could potentially influence Xerxes. Mordecai knew it was a pivotal moment in history, and in the history of God's people, and he knew that God had orchestrated the circumstances. You know, we see that about God all through the Bible. He's always orchestrating circumstances. He's moving armies and people and kings and, and individuals all the time to do his purposes and, and uh, carry through what he has um, in mind for the world. Um, I want to show you two short examples of that, and there's a zillion of them. I just picked two that were kind of my favorites. <laughs> but you're going to be looking at God, how he is the great orchestrator of circumstances. He's a sovereign God. The first example is a vision that King Nebuchadnezzar, who was king of the Babylonian Empire, had. He had this dream. Now, he had lots of wise men that would interpret dreams and stuff like that, but he knew this, this dream was something really special, really out of the ordinary. And so he wanted somebody not only to be able to interpret the dream, he wanted somebody to tell him what the dream was because he wanted authentic. And so the only person who was able to do that was Daniel. So he brings Daniel in, and Daniel prays, and God gives him the interpretation of this crazy dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. Here's what the dream looked like. It was this big statue, uh, very tall statue. It had a gold head. It had a silver breast and arms. It had a bronze belly and thighs, iron legs, and iron and clay feet. Told you it was a crazy dream. How many of you ever dreamed something like that? Well, anyway, he had this dream, and so Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar what the dream was. So Nebuchadnezzar knew that Daniel was authentic because God had told him the very dream that he had had. So 
He asked Daniel, well, when, what does it mean? So Daniel tells him. Um, oh, there's another part of the dream I forgot to mention. He said, you continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Strange and stranger. What did it mean, Nebuchadnezzar asked Daniel. Well, Daniel started with the head of gold, and this is what he tells him. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom. You are the head of gold. So the head of gold in that statue represented the Babylonian Empire, which was happening right at the time when Daniel was interpreting this dream. Then he goes to the silver breast and arms, and he says, after you, there will rise another kingdom inferior to you. And that was the Persian Empire. Now remember, he's talking in advance. This hasn't happened yet. Um, which uh, took over. Darius came in and conquered Babylon uh, shortly after this incident. Then he tells him about the bronze belly and thighs. He says another third kingdom of bronze which will rule over the earth. That's the Greek empire whose reaches just far exceeded any other kingdom which had then taken place. Then he tells him about the iron legs. There will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron inasmuch as iron crashes, crushes and shatters all things so that like iron breaks in pieces it will crush and break all these in pieces. And that, of course, was the Roman Empire, which lasted a long time. But the Roman Empire didn't stay exactly like it started. It actually split, and that's where we get the iron and clay feet. The uh, Roman Empire went um, split into two, east and west. Well, the only thing left we really need to hear about is the rock that came and crushed the statue. The statue blew away, and only the rock was left that grew into the mountain, remember? It says this, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. It will crush and put on end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. In the days of these kings, this new kingdom was going to be established. Well, that would be the kingdom of God, which is what Jesus came to put on the, on the earth, which has expanded um, its boundaries far beyond any of these other inferior kingdoms. So from Daniel's time onward, God showed that everything was going according to plan. Kingdom would follow kingdom would follow kingdom. Conqueror after conqueror would come and go, but none of them was a surprise to God. He already had the whole thing planned out and was going to be like he said. He moves his people and armies around like we move around those little pieces in risk because he is a sovereign God. Okay, that's one example. I have one more example, and that is... The timing of Christ's birth. Another example of God orchestrating circumstances. I'm going to take this thing and throw it out the window in a couple minutes. Okay, the timing of Christ's arrival on earth just, just shows how carefully God orchestrated the circumstances as in time as well. In Galatians, Paul says, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman. In other words, when the time was exactly right. Let me show you some of the ways the time was exactly right. First of all, 
Palestine, it was, the place was exactly right, because Palestine was actually located, or Israel was located right at the crossroads between three continents. So it was the perfect place if you want to establish a new kingdom and spread the word for uh, Jesus' birth to be located. Also, the Greek Empire had just done its work centuries before, and it established a common language, Greek, throughout the entire Greek um, empire. It went from Spain to the end of Persia. Everyone had Greek as their second language. That's why the New Testament is written in Greek, by the way. So it gave this common language that had never been established before in time. Another thing was at the Roman Empire, when Jesus was born, there was something called Pax Romana, and that is this peace, this unmatched stability and prosperity that Roman rule brought so that the progress of the gospel would not be slowed by wars and civil disruptions. And because of the Roman rule, there were no boundaries. There was no hardship trying to get from one place to another because it was all Roman, all good, all Roman Empire. And at the time of Antiochus, which was a century before Jesus was born, there was this terrible war that went on, and Antiochus came in and he tried to destroy the religion of the Jews. And he went in and he desecrated the temple, and there was this big revolt that happened. And that's where Hanukkah comes from, because after the revolt was over and they had won and gotten Antiochus out of there, they went with all the, the candles and, and uh, oil lamps that they were lighting, and that's where Hanukkah ended. But here's what happened. That war where the Maccabees came in and, and, and took over, sparked this nationalistic sense within Israel, and they started looking for their Messiah to come. For the, really the first time in history, it became to be this really present hope. Well, now a century later, guess who shows up? And the Romans were marvelous builders of roads. Um, by the first century, travel was easier throughout the Roman world than at any time in previous history. So Christian evangelists and laymen could move easily through the empire, spreading the word of the good news. So everything had been masterfully brought into place, ready, and then God sent Jesus. He was born in the perfect place at the perfect time. Well, just like Esther, kingdoms, armies, <laughs> making the world ready for Christ, God is the great orchestrator of circumstances, not just for those big things, but in your life too. He pays attention to the big things, but he also pays attention to you and your small details as well. Jesus told us that God knows the number of hairs on our head. Can you imagine that? Raise your hand if you know how many hairs you have on your head. I know I have less than I did a year ago. <laughs> Actually, they've added to my chin instead, but anyway. So he, is, he knows how many hairs we have on our head. That's how personal a God he is. This is what he, David wrote a psalm about that. And this is a beautiful psalm. It's Psalm 139. Let me just read a couple of verses out of it for you. O oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O oh Lord. You hem me in, behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. 
You know, nothing in our circumstances goes unnoticed by God. There's a country song, God Must Be Busy. It makes me crazy every time I hear it because God is never too busy for us. He's involved in every single little detail, and he cares greatly for us. And he is at work in me, in you, to accomplish his purposes. Well, what's his purpose for you? He wants a relationship with you. He wants a relationship with you. You know, it used to be that there was something that stood in the way of that relationship. And that was our sin. Because God is completely holy, and we are not. <laughs> I mean, just take a look at the past 24 hours and think how many times you've sinned. I'm with you. I'm there too. So that was there. That sin was there, and it was in the way of us having this relationship with God. But God did what it took to make that not be an issue anymore. Jesus died on the cross for that sin. And now it can be removed from us because he already suffered the consequences that we should. So he's done everything he could to make a relationship possibly, possible with us. He's standing ready. He desperately wants us to turn to him. He wants you to know him as intimately as he knows you. God's all about the relationship. Jesus said that faith as small as a mustard seed is enough. And that's what we need. We need faith. We don't know how long we have in this earth. We can't count on not getting hit by a car when we walk out to the parking lot today. We don't know. Is he speaking to your heart right now? Is he nudging you a little on the inside, reminding you he loves you and he wants a relationship with you? Because let me tell you something. It's no accident that you're sitting here in this room today. God orchestrated the circumstances, just like he did for Esther, just like he did um, to bring Jesus into this earth, just like he did with all of those kingdoms that he put into place. He does everything for a reason, everything with a purpose. And he brought you here today to hear this message and to think about him and what he wants from you. Don't let this time pass by because you may never hear his voice as clearly again. Who knows whether you have been put in this place for such a time as this. He wants you to come to him. He wants you to ask forgiveness. He wants you to come and he'll fill up your empty heart. He wants to change your life into something with meaning and purpose. He wants you. Don't let another day pass without responding to that call. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's New Hope podcast. Chapel's Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.